Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Number six out of seven churches tonight, we're going to look at the Church of Philadelphia. And I'm not talking about the city in Pennsylvania, but that's okay. Um, Many years ago, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, um, he knew the secret of strength through weakness. You remember Paul wrote, when I'm weak, I am strong. He was complimented once by a friend uh, on the impact of his mission work. And Hudson said this, he says, It seemed to me that God took over the whole world, or looked over the whole world, to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when he at last found me, he said, he's weak enough, he'll do. Now, the point of what he was trying to say is, anyone that's been used of God has been someone that learned to depend on God and not their own strength. And that's certainly what um, Hudson Taylor did. Um, found a little poem. I don't know who to attribute it to. It's unknown. It says, I cannot do without thee i cannot stand alone i have no strength or goodness nor wisdom of my own but thou beloved savior art all in all to me and perfect strength and weakness is theirs who lean on thee and that is so true Uh, we're going to look at the church in philadelphia because uh, the lord said that they had little strength they were a wonderful church but they were a weak church you'll find out a little bit about that um Apart from Smyrna, which we looked at, I guess, a couple or three weeks ago, whenever it was, uh, earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, I guess the second church we looked at was Smyrna. Now we're on number 6, Philadelphia. And those are the only two that Christ did not rebuke, okay? And so this is a wonderful church. This is a blameless church because there's nothing that he, quote, rebukes them from. There's no sin or scandal that he rebukes them or corrects them. And uh, like Smyrna, the believers in Philadelphia faced opposition from the Jews, which now for the second time, Jesus, okay, calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, I understand when you start looking at Bible prophecy, we... We have a high view of Israel. You know, they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And uh, I'm pro-Israel myself today. However, the Bible forces us to be honest. Jesus in Revelation 2.9, when he's talking to the church in Smyrna, he talks about those who say they're Jews and are not. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is Jesus saying this, so we can't dismiss that. And then in uh, Revelation 3.9, again... He uh, says it again, uh, so we'll, we'll dig into that in a minute. Uh, Philadelphia, according to Herschel Hobbes, was a small city dating back to about 159 B.C. Uh, it got its name from Italus II, whose loyalty to his brother Eumenes won him the title of Philadelphius, which was known as Brother Lover. That's why you see the Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Okay, Um, Dennis Johnson said this, he said, Sardis in Philadelphia suffered widespread damage from an earthquake. 
during the reign of the emperor Tiberius, which was around 17 AD. Although Sardis was closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, Philadelphia experienced destructive aftershocks for years afterwards. Roman historians noted the disaster relief granted to Philadelphia in the form of forgiveness from annual tribute and other subsidies. In gratitude for imperial aid, the leaders of Philadelphia erected a huge monument to Tiberius and they renamed their city Neo-Caesarea, which means Caesar's new city. The newly rebuilt city took a new name to honor its imperial patron and rescuer, but Philadelphia's economic weakness slowed its recovery from the earthquake's devastation and prolonged its dependence on Rome. And that's kind of interesting because those themes come out in the context of this letter. Look, if you will, in uh, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. Write to the church, or write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. There's the little power, the weakness we were talking about. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. It was an adventure studying this week. There is a whole lot here. How much time do I have? <laughs> Let's dive in. Uh, verse 7. Uh, each time he begins a letter to one of the churches, it's from Jesus, and it always emphasizes some aspect of Jesus that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 when John had that vision of the risen, glorified Christ. Okay? And so here, the reference is, thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. That's a mouthful. So this kind of points us back to some scripture in the Old Testament, one that comes to mind, and you'll see this in a minute, is Isaiah 60. Verse 14. In Isaiah 60, 14, you see a couple of references to, the, to this uh, scripture verse, and you'll see why. 
In Isaiah 60, verse 14, it says, The sons of your oppressors will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, in that verse is a lot of imagery and references that we're going to find in this letter to the church of Philadelphia. First of all, there in Isaiah 60, 14, it comes from the Holy One of Israel. And when Jesus uh, speaks to the church in Philadelphia, He says He is the Holy One, the True One, which is very interesting. Instead of saying the Holy One of Israel, He says the Holy One, the True One, and you go, what does He mean by True One? And then you get down to verse 9, and He says, I'll make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, but are not. They're not true Jews. But Jesus, He's the Holy One, and He is the true One. Uh, Not only that, He talks about the city of the Lord. What city is that? Jerusalem. Uh, And then He talks about how there will be a day, a moment, and a time when these oppressors will come and bow down to you, and they'll fall down at your feet. Now, granted, that's Isaiah the prophet talking to Israel, and here the, the script flips. Uh, here are going to be some people that claim to be Jews that are not, and they're going to bow down to the believers at Philadelphia and say, yes, the Lord does love you. That's, that's a lot to take in, I know, but that's exactly what is happening here. Um, Dennis Johnson says, Jesus alludes to the Old Testament title of Yahweh the Holy One of Israel. And in Isaiah 60, 14, God promises that His people's oppressors will bow down at their feet and acknowledge that they are the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And likewise, Jesus, the true Holy One, will bring opponents to bow at the church's feet and confess that she is loved by the Lord. That's powerful. There's another verse that uh, you can go back to in Isaiah that we notice here in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Isaiah 22, 22. Now, I can remember that, at least the reference, right? 22, 22. In Isaiah 22, 22, we are introduced to this uh, idea of the house of David, the key and the door being open and and not closed. Uh, It says in Isaiah 22, 22, uh, the Lord is talking, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Does that sound familiar? Because right here in Revelation 3, 7, thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who who opens and no one can close, who, who closes and no one can open. Absolutely. You see, the key of David, according to Herschel Hobbes, The key of David and the rest of the verse refers to Isaiah 22, where Jehovah gave the key of the house of David to Eliakim, showing him to be the kingly successor to the house of David. The key was his kingly authority, but Eliakim's reign would end. Christ said that this key was his. He is the true son of David, whose kingdom shall never end. He holds the keys of authority in heaven, earth, and Hades. There in Revelation 1.18, we know that He has the keys. 
Um, let me go back and look at that. In Revelation 1, uh, 18, the vision of Christ, and it says, the living one, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Well, not only does he hold the keys of death and Hades, but now he's got the key to the house of David. Okay? And when he opens a door, no man can shut it. And when he shuts the door, no man can open it. So his authority is absolute. And that's pretty powerful. That is the image, okay? This is just the beginning of the letter. That is the image that we have of Jesus as he speaks to this church in Philadelphia. And you might, if you were like me, you're like, well, this is interesting. I don't know where this is going. I'm not sure why he's presenting himself this way. But when we get through the rest of this short letter, you'll know exactly why. So let's, uh, so let's digest this for a minute. Um, a lot of times when we're, we're reading, you know, you've got to understand the difference between interpretation and application. I, the way I was taught, and I believe this, I believe that Scripture has one interpretation okay it can have many and hundreds and hundreds of applications but it has one interpretation what do i mean by that well god used a human person to write you know this this script what we have a scripture now it was written in in history to particular people at a particular place at a particular time and it had a specific intended meaning for the original audience and we have to know what that is first, then we can go ask the question, what does that mean to us now, okay? Uh, you can be having a Bible study, and you can read something, and hey, what, do you, what did you get out of that? Well, I got this, and I got that. Well, a lot of times when we talk like that, we're all making an application. But if you're looking at interpretation, what does the Bible mean? It has one meaning, and so that's what we're, what we're looking at. When you, when you uh, make an application of an open door, like it says here, opening a door, no one can close, closing a door, no one can open. You know, many times we talk about God's will that way, don't we? You know, when he opens, when he closes one, he opens another, right? Uh, when we talk about praying for the gospel to go out, we pray that God would give us an open door to, to go here or there and, and share the gospel with people. Uh, that's a good application. Uh, many commentators interpret this as an opportunity for mission and evangelism uh, because Paul the Apostle uses that kind of imagery, how God's opened a door for us. But the context of this passage of Scripture shows that the open door before the church in Philadelphia is the door into the kingdom of God. It's Jesus Christ Himself, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. And um, he says that it cannot be shut against this church even when the synagogue of Satan tries to stand in their way. And the, the conqueror, the, the victor, the believer in Philadelphia will enjoy permanent access to God's presence as a pillar built into the structure of God's temple sanctuary never to leave his, his holy presence. And then the next open door you see will be in um, Revelation 4.1, and we'll get to that when we get to that, uh, through which John will enter to see the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. And because Jesus holds David's key, no one can lock his people out of this city of God, this sanctuary, this temple. 
We'll, we'll get more into this as we go along. We're not done with that imagery yet, but let's keep moving. Verse 8. Now, here's a common refrain. You've seen this in every letter so far to the previous five churches. Jesus says, I know your works. And here he says the same thing. They're about to get their report card. He says, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now here we see three things. They have little power, but they've kept God's word. They have not denied the name of Christ. They've been faithful. Uh, William Henderson said, Christ knows that although this church has but little power, being small in number and in wealth, it has remained loyal to the gospel and has not denied the name of its Lord. Isn't that good to know? In a day, in an, in a day and time now when you know, people look at bigger churches as perhaps more blessed than maybe smaller churches, uh, God looks at, doesn't look at the size of the church as much as He looks at the spirit of the church, whether or not they're faithful and obedient to Him, and that's what we see here. The church in Philadelphia may not have been large, but they were faithful, and they were commended by the Lord. They were not rebuked. They were not corrected. Notice in verse 9, he says, But note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Again, that's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, Jesus, is, this is not the first time he's used this uh, metaphor or moniker of synagogue of Satan. If you go back one chapter, Revelation 2, verse 9, talking to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So we can say unequivocally that in both instances, he's consistent. Those that claim to be Jews, but they are not, he calls a synagogue of Satan. Okay? That's the criteria, uh, you could say. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Boy, when I studied this, it's amazing. You remember the quote from Isaiah 60, 14, and we'll, you know, we'll mention that again here in a little bit, but as I was looking at, um, at another book, Michael Kukendall, he teaches at uh, Golden Gate Seminary. He says, The traditional identification is the local Jewish majority at Smyrna and Philadelphia, whom the risen Christ rejects because of it be. In the Old Testament, Jews were called a synagogue of the Lord in Numbers 16 and Numbers 20. But their persecution of Jesus' followers compels John, the apostle, to refer to them as a synagogue of Satan. Both references in Revelation confirm that the true synagogue is now the church. Unbelieving Jews are called the synagogue of Satan because, ironically, although they believe they're God's true people, they are not because they reject Christ, they oppress His followers, and they have forfeited the meaning of their name. Strong language, I know. Um, 
Beale says this, the allusion to Isaiah chapter 45, 14, 49, 23, and the one we mentioned earlier, Isaiah 60, 14, where Isaiah prophesies that the Gentiles, okay, this is what Isaiah prophesied, that the Gentiles will come and bow down for, before Israel in the last days and that this will represent a genuine turning to and worship of the true God. And now the script is flipped. Note the reverse of this prophetic fulfillment. The Gentiles of Isaiah, referring to unbelievers, are now considered to be unbelieving Jews, whereas Isaiah's Israel, referring to God's faithful people, is now the church. Whereas in Isaiah, it was God who was to bring all this about. Now it's revealed that it's Christ going to bring all this about, which really emphasizes the deity of Christ. He is the Holy One. He is the true one. Okay, I like what Michael Wilcox said on this. As you can tell, I had to look at a, a lot of commentaries and depend on people smarter than me when it comes to this. But uh, Michael Wilcox said this, and uh, before I quote it, let me keep reading. So you go into verse 10, and then let's read the rest. Because you've kept my command to endure, I'll keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And then here's a fourfold promise. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he'll never go out again. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. So fourfold promise. I'll be a pillar in the temple of God. I'll have the name of God, the name of the city of my God, and a new name. Okay, so this whole group of ideas that concerns entry to the house of David, according to Wilcock, the kingdom, the city, and the temple of God. What happens to it, we may follow step by step. The Lord condemns Jewish legalism. Remember in Matthew, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And he transfers the doorkeeper's authority to the church when he told the apostles, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter and his associates have the privilege of admitting not only Jews, but Samaritans and Gentiles into the kingdom. You know that when you read the book of Acts. The, the gospel starts in Jerusalem and then Samaria or Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It breaks all of the barriers. And as a result, in this way, the entire concept, watch closely, key, door, city, temple, and pillar becomes a Christian one. That's amazing when you think about it. You read this letter again and you look at the images, and it starts with the key, the key of David, the kingdom, and then the door that can either be open and not closed or closed and not open. And then after the door, it's the city and the temple and then the pillar in the temple. You see the progression there that you and I, because of Jesus Christ, are going to be in the presence of the Holy One someday forever and ever. And there's nothing that man can do about it because it's all of God. And he says, the Jews, those who claim to know me but really don't, they will know that I have loved you. Man, that's powerful. That's a lot right there. And 
the more I studied this, I thought, wow, the, the verse that should make us look the most at all of this is verse 9. But historically, the verse that everybody wants to talk about is verse 10. So let's talk about verse 10. In verse 10, because of the language, he says something that we know in our hearts that if he's writing a letter to those believers at that time and place with those people, then it had to mean something to them. You know, historically, it had to mean something to them. And yet, it's God's Word. It also says something to us. Yes, even you and I. And so in Revelation 3.10, he says to the church, because you've kept my command to endure, going back to verse 8, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, I don't know how to explain some parts of this. First of all, I believe that has some kind of meaning for the original audience. Now, I do believe this is talking about what's going to happen in the very last days before Christ comes back. But you know, it's been almost 2,000 years. If that's the only meaning, then what relevance does it have to the original hearers in Philadelphia? Perhaps they were going through some trying times, okay? But here it says, Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing or trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now I want to kind of reverse engineer this verse for a minute. Let's start with the, the outcome and go back. So it says that this hour, of this hour of testing is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So what is the purpose of this event? The purpose, according to Bill, of God's action is to test those who dwell upon the earth. And the purpose of this testing is a judgment on unbelievers. How do we know that? Because the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, or earth dwellers as some say, is a technical term in Revelation that refers exclusively to the unsaved, particularly idol worshipers. And if you're taking notes and you want to write this down real quick, I'm going, to get, I'm going to give you a few rapid-fire uh, references in the rest of Revelation that make this case. In Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Those are the Christian martyrs that are at the throne of God and they're crying out for justice. And they said, Lord, how much longer until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? The inference there is those that, were, that are on the earth, they are unrepentant, they don't believe God, and they have even persecuted followers of Christ. In Revelation 8.13, John says, I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe! Woe to those who live on the earth. There's that phrase again. Because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. And um, you, you see that. Those that live on the earth, they, they have unbelief and they're unrepentant. In Revelation 11, verse 10, uh, when the two witnesses there in, later in Revelation, when they are killed, it says, those who live on the earth, there's that statement again, that phrase. 
They will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. In Revelation 13, all those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone, in other words, the beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who uh, was slaughtered. So there you kind of got a qualifier. These that live on the earth, they, they're, they're not written in the book of life of the Lamb. They're unbelievers. Then you have Revelation 13, verses 12 through 14. Uh, it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed it also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it's permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Do you see that refrain, these people of the earth? They are getting caught up in idolatry. They do not believe Christ. They do not follow Christ. They, they're unrepentant. They don't have belief. They're idol worshipers. And then in Revelation 17 too, the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. In Revelation 17.8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, that's the second time that's been mentioned, will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. Over and over as you go through Revelation, you see this phrase, these people of the earth. It's referring specifically to people that are earthly minded. They don't believe in Christ. They reject Christ. They don't follow Christ. They, they walk in unbelief. They are unrepentant about their sin. And they even at one point, they persecute Christians. Okay? So, you go back to Revelation 3, 10. Because you kept my command to endure... I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world. It's going, to be, it's going to affect everybody, the whole world, and it's going to test those who live on the earth. And you know, when you read that, at first you're like, well, it's going to test everybody. But when you see how that phrase is used throughout Revelation, it's going to come on the whole world, but it's going to test those who are unbelievers. And yet God promises to keep His believers. Now, let's talk about the monkey in the room in a minute, okay? Many people love to use Revelation 3.10 as a proof text for the pre-trib rapture of the church. Now, full disclosure, I believe in the post-trib rapture of the church, not the pre-trib. Just got to be honest about that. But when you look at this, when you look at this, you have to go, now, what is this verse saying? Is this the get-out-of-jail you know, free card? I don't think so. If you're a pre-trib dispensationalist, then I would want to ask you a question. If you believe that the seven churches in Revelation go through the seven ages of the church age, then we are somewhere in 
Sardis and Philadelphia now because the rapture of the church hasn't happened yet. And then when the rapture happens, the church is taken out of the world and it's just Israel. And yet we still have one more church, which is Laodicea. So I don't think that, I don't think that all squares to me. But there's a bigger reason, actually. God promises that he will keep his people, that he will protect his people. You have kept my command to endure, and I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world. You know what's very interesting? And again, I'm going to quote Jesus on this, because if anybody else called a synagogue of Jewish people a synagogue of Satan, we'd be ready to take them outside and whoop them around a little bit. But Jesus is called a a synagogue of Jews that do not believe a synagogue of Satan twice in two chapters. Jesus did that, okay? And so what I also want you to know that Jesus says here is that there is one other verse, okay? There's only one other verse in the Bible. I'll narrow it down. There's one other verse in the New Testament that has this same exact phrase in the Greek as well as in the English when it talks about I am going to keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world. That keep you from, okay, did you know that, that that's one other place? And it's from the words of Jesus. And I want you to look at it. It's John 17. In John 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have that he prayed when he was on earth during his earthly ministry and in John 17 he he began by praying for himself because he was about to go to the cross and then he prayed for his disciples those immediate followers that were around him and then ultimately he prayed for all future believers which includes you and me and look if you will in John 17 14 I want to get a little running start here Jesus said he's talking to the father okay about his disciples and Jesus says to the Father in, in John 17, 14, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of, there it is, the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If Jesus was ever going to himself personally teach about a pre-trib rapture of the church, that would have been the perfect place to put it, but he didn't do it. He says, Lord, you know, they hated me first. Now they hate my followers, but I'm praying for them. I'm praying that you will not take them out of the world. That'd be easy to do, right? He could do it if he wanted to. I'm, I'm not praying that you'll take them out of the world but that you will protect them from the evil one. What is he saying here in Revelation 3.10? He says, because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole earth. In other words, I'm promising not physical removal, but spiritual protection. And what I can say to you is, if the uh, tribulation is not important to believers, then let's quit at Revelation 3, whatever the last verse is in Revelation 3, 22, and let's just stop and not even go through the rest of Revelation because I can say it's not going to bother you. It, it doesn't matter. 
we won't be here for that. But if you keep reading what you will find as you go through Revelation, he distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. You will see it. As we go through Revelation, you will see that. See, usually the biggest objection that people have when they say, wait a minute, Brother Corey, if I hear you right, number one, I don't like it. And a lot of times I'll smile and say, you know what, I don't either. I hope I'm wrong, but this is what I believe the Bible teaches. Uh, I would go so far as say the Bible doesn't teach a pre-trib rapture. You have to infer it, but it's not explicitly said. It doesn't explicitly say that, okay? And, and I, I will stand on that, and I can even show you Scripture. Where you think it teaches that, I could say, let's read that in context. You might infer that but it does not explicitly say that. And if that's new to you, that's okay. Don't judge me. Just let's look at the Word, be a Berean believer, see if all this squares with Scripture. If you have questions and you don't want to say anything out here, come to me. I would love to talk to you about it, okay? Uh, this is not a, a hobby horse that I feel like I have to defend. Uh, my conviction is just teach the Word of God according to your conscience, and that's, that's all I'm trying to do. Um, but here, here's what I want you to see. Um, um, when you realize this, that uh, God distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous, usually that's the big objection. How, how could God do that? Because we're his people. Why do we have to go through that? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back to the first time that came up in the Bible. Got to go all the way back to Genesis. When God, the Lord himself, came down with a couple of angels they were visitors, and they appeared to Abraham and Sarah to make a birth announcement that in a year, you're going to have a boy. You're going to name him Isaac. And then, while they were about ready to go, the Lord said, I've got to tell Abraham something. And Abraham's like, Lord, what is it? He says, I'm fixing to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry against them is great. I hear it, and I'm going to see for myself. Abraham already knew the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was not good. And Abraham began to say, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, would you spare it? Yes, yes, for 50 I would. Lord, forgive me, but how about 40? Yeah, I would. How about 30? How about 20? Finally, Lord, please don't get mad at me, but I'm going to say this one last time. How about 10? Because by the time you count Lot and his wife, and his daughters, so on and so forth. He's thinking, you know, they've had kids. Hopefully, you know, 10 will do it, right? Lord, if there's 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? Yes, I will. Abraham charged God. You're judge of the all, all you're judge of the whole earth. Who are you to, you know, who are you to treat the the, the righteous like the wicked. Aren't you going to spare the righteous in that city? And he did. What did uh, he do? He protected Lot. He protected Lot. Well, here's the thing. Let's go on. This refers, and in many ways you can make connections with uh, Bible prophecy from the old to the new. In Daniel chapter 12, look at this for a minute. In Daniel 12, you'll see the connection here in a moment. In Daniel 12, the first 10 verses, at that time, Michael, the great 
prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. And there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape, or as the King James says, will be delivered. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. So you've got the second coming of Christ here. He comes, the dead are raised, and they're judged. That's what's happening here in these two verses. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. And then I, Daniel, looked and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. And one of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, How long until the end of these wondrous things? In other words, when? How much longer? And then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And you see that kind of rhythm and metric and phraseology and revelation as we go deeper in the book. And when the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. And I heard but did not understand, so I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And here's what he said, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. What's, that's very interesting words there. You see, this prophecy that God gave Daniel about the end times, God told him to seal it up. It's not time to be revealed. When you get to John in Revelation, now it's time to open it up and let everybody know. And when you look at that word um, testing in Revelation um, 3.10, um, this hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth, to test, that verb form is right there in uh, Daniel 12, verse 10. Your, your um, English Bible will probably sound different. Mine does too. But when it says many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, whatever that third word is, that's it. Test. But the wicked will act wickedly. As one commentator says, according to Jesus' words, therefore, believers will endure physical suffering but they will be kept spiritually safe in the midst of it. Therefore, this verse does not speak of a physical rapture from the beginning of a coming great tribulation. Rather, it refers to Christ's protection through end-time tribulation, which had already started in the first century and will get worse as the end approaches. That John has in mind a spiritual protection of Christians as they go through tribulation is evident from the likely allusion of verse 10 in Daniel 12 where that hour is immediately described as the day of tribulation when many are tested and sanctified and sinners sin. It suggests that this testing has a double effect on sinners and saints. For saints, it purifies them. It strengthens them. For sinners, it just simply hardens them for the punishment they deserve. 
Wow. One guy, a scholar, said our understanding of Revelation 3.10 is as follows. As a reward for its faithful perseverance, Christ promises the church of Philadelphia and all faithful believers His special protection in the hour of universal tribulation which comes before His return. For Christians, this tribulation, besides being a threat to their physical safety, will also be a further test of their faith, which by the Lord's help they'll be able to withstand. For the enemies of the church, however, whether Jew or Gentile, it will come as deserved punishment for their wickedness. The backdrop to Revelation, even though we don't want to talk about it, is persecution. John is on the island of Patmos, and he suffered, and he's gone through persecution and tribulation, and now he's got this vision of the glorified Christ And he writes to churches, and many of them are going through persecution. And then the scroll is opened by Christ. And you see this this drama unfold that just illustrates what's been going on behind the scenes all these years until one day the world becomes that kingdom of the Lord and His Christ. And you see as this drama unfolds, you see how... Persecution is the backdrop of it. In Revelation 1.9, John started his letter, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so for that reason, in Revelation 3, 11 through 13, the, the last part of this letter, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown." The one who conquers, and there's the fourfold promise, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The fourfold promise, he'll make us a pillar in the temple. He'll write on us the name of our God, the name of the city of our God, and his new name. Um. One guy says the pillar in the temple is is a symbol of promise of security, eternally and intimate fellowship with God for the victorious believer. One said Christ begins to open the doors. This is good. Christ begins to open the doors of the heavenly Jerusalem for the faithful here on earth, which no one can shut. Remember, he opens a door that no one can shut. And this is consummated when his people enter through the gates of the new Jerusalem and Revelation 21, 25, and the gates shall never be closed. The promise of verse 12 is fulfilled in the saints participating in the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. So here's this church in Philadelphia, and Christ points to an open door. He commends them for keeping His word. He reminds them they have little strength. He tells them continue to hold on to what you have. And he promises them a secure dwelling with God forever. So we've we've talked a lot. We've gone through a lot. Let me give you a handle so you can carry this home. What does this mean to you and I? Well, the takeaway is verse 11. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Now, that is saying be faithful to Christ and don't lose your reward, okay? Don't lose your reward. 
to be consistent with John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the first, second, and third epistles of John, and then Revelation. If you jump to 2 John, verse 8, it's short, it's like a postcard. In 2 John, verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves so you don't lose what we've worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Now, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about rewards. He says, Watch yourselves. So you don't lose what you've worked for, but you may receive a full reward. Hold on to what you have. Remain faithful to God. Keep on keeping on and let Him give you the strength you need to continue to serve Him. My challenge to you tonight is this. Will you remain faithful to Christ and depend on Him for strength? Because when we are weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in the Word. Father, I pray that your will would be done in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would dig in the Scriptures like we haven't in a long time. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, we want to hear your voice. Lord, we want to obey your Word and walk in your will and experience your ways. Father, have your will in each and every heart and home tonight, represented in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.